Megan McCain has entered the chat. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. Still getting over my illness, but feeling much better. I want to thank you all for hanging in there with my weird voice, a few little coughs, but you know, on the mend. Today we have two, I always say we have two incredible guests, but we really do have like two wonderful people who are also friends of mine coming on. Janice Dean, the weather machine, is the longtime Fox News senior meteorologist, host of the Janice Dean podcast, and a New York Times bestselling author, and also my very, very, very good friend. And I'm so excited to have her on just to talk about, I don't know. All things fun and politics and weather related, I guess, Miranda. And then the wow. next person is uh, Dave Rubin, host of the Rubin Report that uh, is on at 11 a.m. Sorry, 11 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Thursday on Rumble and YouTube. And I've known him since I lived in L.A. I've known him since he was a centrist. So I'm excited to talk to both of them. And, yeah, we just keep having our friends on the show and people we like. But uh, I think it'll be good. You sound so much better, by the way, today. i got to tell you that... Modern medicine is incredible. <laughs> Steroids are wonderful. And there's this machine called the Navage. They we are they are not sponsoring us, they should. But it's is like this nose, the nose thing? Yes, it's this nose suction thing where you like put these two things in your nose and there's water in it. It basically like sucks all the disgusting stuff out of your nose. Life changer, maybe my favorite purchase of twenty twenty three. And I also bought a really beautiful handbag this year. So like just <laughs> saying it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I've been doing it every morning and like it, it's like a game changer when you're sick. I could not emphasize how much I love this machine more. So Do you get to watch like all the gook and stuff? It's like, disgusting. Do you yes. get to watch it come out though? Yes. Because that would be really fun. It's very I, satisfying. That would that uh, would be like the highlight of it. It's, it's like, seriously yes. like you gotta get it. It's kind of pricey. It's like $100, but it's worth it. I'm so. going to put it on my like Amazon wish list. <laughs> I, I, somebody told me about it a while ago, and I bought it, and I was like, it's like the best. So really, there's just – I'm on the men, but, you know, getting sick sucks. But, you know, we got to still tape. The show must go on, as they say. Here's your silver lining as you found the Navage. Yeah, so. I'm telling you, get the Navage machine. And they should sponsor us because we've just given them like five shout-outs. But it, it's like <laughs> I love – inventors like somebody was like it's like a neti pot but i'll suction it out with electronics for you so i i I don't love a neti pot i feel like i tried it once and it went the wrong way and it was like getting water up my nose when you go swimming that's how it felt and so it just it really turned me off to all those kinds of things but it's an electronic neti pot it's great All right. I'm sure that's how these people want to be introduced. But um, (laughs) on that note, uh, we give you Janistine and Dave Rubin. (laughs) Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. And my next guest really needs no introduction. She's one of the best people on in planet earth ever janice dean the weather machine i gotta say your your official title you are fox news's senior meteorologist host of the janice dean podcast a multiple new york times best-selling author and all-around interesting raconteur iconoclast all-around bad bitch you are one of my favorite people <laughs> on planet earth for real you're one of my all-time favorite people well i feel the same about you so this is just going to be a love fest and we need to get bad bitch t-shirts i know and i because i feel the same about you i do i really i want to just say like i have known janice it feels like my 
entire adult life. But mm-hmm. I think I met you when I was like 23 or something. I remember. Imus, of all things, which no one like really knows what that is anymore. But he was a very <laughs> famous radio host um, who got in a lot of trouble and was very controversial. Infamous. An infamous radio host. And weirdly, like my dad really loved him. He loved. I saw your dad on Imus more than I think any other guest. <laughs> yes, and was- so a part of me thought if. John McCain sees the goodness in this man, then there has to be good somewhere, somewhere in there. But he was not nice to you. I never found that goodness. (laughs) Yeah, he was a very complicated man. And you know what? A lot of like guys like that who are like sort of like hyper alpha, they -hmm. always were cool with my dad because my dad was hyper alpha. So they like wouldn't pull the same shit. There's like quite a few people I can look to that have very bad reputations that like my dad really liked and I'd always be like, no, they're just nice to you because you're you. (laughs) I think there is something to that. Yeah. Yes, I would agree. Because when your dad used to come into the studio, he was on his best behavior. It was when your dad left that he would take out the gun. Yeah. I don't think people know this. He waved a gun around in the studio at Janice, which is absolutely insane, obviously. And And it, it took me a long time and a lot of therapy to get over that one year of working with him. And, you know, back then, so I was in my, when did I move to New York? I moved to New York for that job right after 9-11, so 2002. I mean, I was 32 and I knew better, but it was just such an insane work environment that you just kind of, you just went to work and hope for the best that, you know, the the gun wasn't loaded. It's horrible. (laughs) There's so much, but I mean, part of my connection with you is like, being a woman in media is, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you are a, you know, a small, low level producer someplace. I don't care if you are hosting the Today Show. It's rough. It still yeah. is, even today. And when I, before I worked at Fox and when I worked at Fox, you have a reputation for being like the mom. Like, if you have a problem, you need to go to Janice because she'll help you figure it out. <laughs> and I, you were always so kind and warm and really showing me the ropes through so many things when I worked again, like not just at Fox, but in media in general. And you still have this reputation for being like a woman woman can go to, which mm-hmm. is very rare in media and very rare, I think, like probably in general. And I just want you to know that you have gotten me through so many personal and professional crises. And if you ever murder someone and need me to help you bury them, I will be there for you. I, I know you. you've told me that before and, <laughs> and it means the world to me because I truly know that you would do that. I would. And I think it's important to have female role models, not necessarily role models, but people you can go to in whatever business, you know, because listen, this can be tough for any young female getting into broadcasting, but it's also not only with the work environment sometimes with bosses in general, but women can be really catty to one another, right? So I, I just, am a, I love my girlfriends and if you're my girlfriend, it's do or die and you're one of those people. You know, I knew right away when I met you, there was something very special about you. Sorry. And and so I know that you and I are going to be friends for the rest of our lives. There's just no question. Why do you think you have this reputation, though, for being like the woman that women can go to? Because, again, it is unique. And everyone that I know that has worked with you has the same experience. It's like she will guide you. She will show you how to. it's stuff as simple as like help you read copy if you need to. 
as more complicated as like at different times in the past. If you need to go to HR about different things, she'll help you with that too. And, you know, I just, it's interesting because there just are these few women that I can point to that like when you're in a crisis. And do you think that's just because you had gone through so much in your life, you know, before Fox, at Fox, just in your life in general, you have multiple sclerosis. You have someone who has experienced pain and adversity and you know like you have these beautiful books about looking at the sunny side of life but I think part of it is because you have experience your husband's a freaking 9-11 firefighter if people Mm. don't know that who lost his entire firehouse Mm. on 9-11 I mean like you've experienced things do you think that's why maybe I think that's part of it you know I, I think I had a great childhood you know and I had a mom and a dad and and we weren't particular well-to-do. I wasn't the brightest kid in class, but I think I was always a happy kid. I think you could definitely go back and see when I was little that I was pretty happy-go-lucky regardless of the circumstances. And I had a lot of good girlfriends in my life, which I'm grateful for. But probably getting into this business and seeing some of the things that I saw and, you know, you and I have talked when I was In my 20s and I was living in Houston, I had someone break into my house and I was sexually assaulted. Luckily, I was able to, you know, get out of there unscathed, relatively unscathed, um, without being really, really hurt. But all of those circumstances definitely make you realize that life is short, that you really have to have a core group of people around you. Like even though I didn't have my family in Houston, I had really good friends that helped me and supported me. And so I I think that there is something to that, that if you go through some tough stuff and you're able to come out on the other side and do a lot of work on yourself, you know, listen, I've been in therapy for 30 years. I think that it will, you know, you want to the best for other people. You want other people to get through certain situations. And being here at Fox, it's no secret to a lot of people here. And I wrote about it in my book, Mostly Sunny, that I was also sexually harassed here by by the boss. And so I know what it's like to be a woman in that position when you feel very helpless and you want to still keep your job and you kind of navigate this weird world of this person sort of hitting on you, but you don't quite know why. And you have to kind of laugh it off and and keep reminding this person you have a boyfriend. You know, so I take those experiences and I want to make sure that all women are able to report somehow. If they don't feel comfortable going to HR, I want to make sure that my door is open so that they can come to me and I can guide them through something. So there is an experience level that you that you bring with those kinds of opportunities that are presented to you if there's a young woman that needs help. Another thing I was thinking about is that your job as a meteorologist, I just know from being friends with you, like when there's severe weather things like hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and things like that, you have to be on air like 24-7. You like have to sleep at work like a doctor. And obviously, like those are situations where people are losing their homes, losing, God forbid, their lives or, you know, friends and family's livelihoods. Like it's in a very that's also a very intense job to do. I was even going to ask you, like, I read that we're going to have the coldest winter, like snowiest winter ever here in D.C. And like, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Okay, All right. But do you think that like being that being part of your job, too, because, again, it's a lot of intensity being a meteorologist, too. It's not always, you know, your book is mostly sunny. But again, just knowing you and being friends with you, 
you have to go on TV and talk about a lot of really scary stuff, too. Do you think mm-hmm. that's part of what... And not to get, like, too Dr. Phil on you, but... No, I never thought about that, to be honest. And, yeah, when you are predicting a storm, I've predicted... I've been working here for 20 years, and I can I can name a few storms that really scared me, and I knew that people were going to die, Hurricane Katrina being, you know, the one that comes to mind the most. And I remember being on television and knowing that this monster was going to hit uh, Louisiana and parts of the Gulf Coast and that would never be the same. And I also knew there were so many people that were seeking shelter in areas that were probably going to be inundated with flood water. I was crying on the air. I remember Geraldo, we were I was working overnight, right? And and he was talking about this storm and how potentially dangerous and deadly it was going to be and I had like a lump in my throat. But I think that that is important that's an important thing to have too as a broadcaster in television is, you know, we're not perfect, even though some people might think they are, or the, you know, the facade that we have on television with this perfect hair and the the perfect makeup. But I've learned in this career that people relate to you more when you let your guard down. And so I remember those moments and I talk about them. And if I'm concerned, I'm going to let people know, you know, you mentioned I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Well, I was very forthcoming with that diagnosis because I thought to myself, I don't want to lie. I mean, these people are inviting me into their homes. You know, I see some of the fans out on Fox Square when I do the weather. They really think of me as a part of their family. And so I think I owe it to them to be honest with them. So when it comes to storms, you know, I'll let people know our reporters that are in the middle of a storm. I'll be like, Go to safety right now. Uh, you know, I don't want to see you holding on to a signpost. I really want you to be careful, you know. So I think I've always kind of been been like that. I think honesty has always been the best policy on air and off air. So, you know, maybe there is something to that that I really sort of put myself into other people's shoes. And that carries into the broadcasting world. Another thing I want to ask you about is, you know, people I think that follow my life know that we're friends because we're close friends and, you know, we share a lot on social media. You, for people that maybe don't know, you lost both of your in-laws during COVID in an extremely tragic way because uh, Governor Cuomo lied and said that he was moving. He lied about, I mean, you can probably say it better, but basically your in-laws died because of bad legislation from Governor Cuomo. And... It was very tragic and dark and insane and scary when it happened. And I remember talking to you about it in real time and being so overwhelmed with like, how is this happening? This is hell. This is my version of hell is getting these kind of phone calls and being so scared about what COVID meant because they died early on. And since then, you've really become someone who was pushed for legislation, for clarity, for justice, not only for your in-laws, but for other people who died who didn't need to and wouldn't have had they not been moved in these nursing homes. Where are you right now emotionally? Where are you with your activism? And can you, again, explain this better than I just did because it's your life and your story? No, listen, you did a great job. And I want to just say that you were so important in my life and still are important in my life. I'm gonna try not to get upset because you were one of those people that when people were silent about it, you were using your platform to let people know what had happened. And during that time, you know, Cuomo was being revered as the next president. I mean, I watched his fireside chats in the beginning of COVID and thought he was doing a good job 
until we lost two family members in nursing homes because they contracted COVID and because I believe it was his uh, his mandate on March 25th to put 9,000 COVID positive patients into where our most elderly resided. I believe that is why we had so many that died, those reckless, you know, orders and his terrible, deadly leadership. And when I first started talking about it, people were, you know, shocked, but also, oh, how does she know anything? She's just the weather lady, even though I had lost two loved ones. But you put yourself out there. Uh, in front of a lot of criticism, because again, at the time he was being touted as this COVID leader that, you know, that knew everything and was uh, flattening the curve in New York City, uh, regardless of these reports that were coming out of the nursing home. So I want to thank you for using your platform when a lot of people were afraid. As to your part of the question of how's how it's going now, it's three years later, I've not stopped. You know, even though the news headlines are not out there anymore and he's trying to make a comeback, you know, I'm still using my platform and social media to remind people of what he did. My husband is involved in a lawsuit with a couple of other families that, you know, is, is it's taking a very, very long time. That's what happens when when you do these kinds of things, the, you know, the the what's the what's the phrase the wheels of justice sometimes take a very very long time and that's what's happening in this case but i believe justice is on our side the angels are on our side i believe the truth is going to come out at some point but we're doing everything in our power to do that personally and i'm also going to dc when it's appropriate to remind lawmakers there that this wasn't just a new york problem and if we don't get to the bottom of what happened during COVID and the reckless leadership that we had, not only in New York, but other states, then it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be silent about it. You know, every chance I get, I'm going to remind people that he is still not being held accountable for those decisions of putting thousands of sick people into where our most elderly resided. And if there was one thing we knew about COVID in the very beginning, is that it was going to be potentially deadly for our seniors. And to to know that our leaders, even telling us to stay away from the virus, decided to put the virus where our most susceptible lived, that is unconscionable. It, oh, it's yeah. just, it's to this day, it should shake people to their core. Well, it's it does. And I think especially, you know, there is this, I always got this attitude from, the Cuomo's that older people's lives just had less value or something Mm -hmm. because they were elderly, because they were in an assisted living facility, that that means their life just somehow didn't mean as much, which to me is like the most gross, the most macabre, the most disgusting attitude you can have towards human beings. And I don't understand why anyone anywhere wants to give any of the Cuomo's credence. I can actually remember talking about I don't remember what the context was something on air and his brother Chris texting me and he had somehow gotten my phone number from somebody I worked with at the view and I never answered it because I was like you know go to hell and also like please mansplain to me what's going on when my but one of my best friends has gone through this huge tragedy that I've had like real-time upfront experience watching the horror show of 
And the hubris and the arrogance of these guys even now shocks me. It -hmm. just shocks me. If I had somehow been culpable in the deaths of someone's in-laws, anyone, in any death anyway, but especially in this situation, I would never be on TV again. I would never talk again. I would. Yeah. Uh, but these guys, you know, they they grew up on third base, right? I mean, it's just I don't think they've ever known suffering or what it's like to lose someone. I remember Cuomo when he was being asked about the nursing homes and he would bring up his dad. Well, I would love to blame somebody else for my dad's death. Well, his dad died of natural causes. Mm-hmm. You know, his dad didn't die in a nursing home gasping for breath because someone had put thousands of sick patients into where they lived without permission from Mm. uh, the people, you know, responsible for them. Um, And, you know, Chris Cuomo's back on television and he's got his own podcast and all that. Listen, Chris Cuomo wasn't the one that was the leader at the time, but he did prop his brother up and he with with literal props. With like The thing <laughs> right. I remember is like that giant Q-tip. And the thing mm-hmm. I remember at the time, I am not a journalist. I'm a political analyst, but I'm a conservative political analyst. And people know I have a, 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 a you know, not an agenda, but perspective. I felt like it was the most, I think when that period of time is studied in journalism schools, that is going to be the most egregious evidence of the propagandistic insanity that happened during that time. You're talking about two brothers, like you said, wealthy elite people covering at the time. People knew about the deaths of your in-laws and, like you said, 9,000 other people. It was not a secret. And they're sitting around just basically like having some kind of comedy show. And I think it's, you know, ultimately probably why they both lost their jobs in, in one way or another. I mean, there's other scandals as well. But I still can't believe that there hasn't been real culpability journalistically for a lot of the, the stuff that happened with them. Mm. Well, he was fired from CNN, and now he is on a different news channel that doesn't have as many viewers. So I think there was, you know, he was knocked down, but I just don't think it's in their personality to really do the work and understand what was happening to other people, because I think they live in this world where it's just all about themselves. So I think of it as a personality disorder. I don't necessarily think of them as per se, evil people. I just think that they don't know anything else except trying to be successful in front of a camera or a microphone, and they don't know anything else. You know, I think if Chris Cuomo and even Andrew Cuomo, to a certain degree, if they went away for a while, Mm -hmm. right? Like if they both decided to go away for even a year where we didn't hear anything, And then they came back and they maybe did a podcast or an interview and they said, oh, my gosh, you know what? We just we were terrible and we understand what we did. And, you know, I think some of us would forgive that if they understood what they did wrong. Even if Cuomo, I always said that if early on he had called some of the families, if he had gone on television, said, my gosh, we made the biggest mistake And I will spend the rest of my life trying to right this wrong. And I'm going to call families. I'm going to write condolence cards. But instead, he celebrated himself. He wrote a $5 million book in the middle of a pandemic. He shoved it in our faces. He won an Emmy. He never took responsibility for anything. But had he done that early on, I would have forgiven him. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have gone down the road of trying to find out why he did what he did. 
which I'm grateful for because I really do believe there is criminality in that. But I just don't think they have it in themselves to reflect or do the work. Told you I've been in therapy for 30 years. I don't think they know what that is. So I I do think that that's just sort of like part of their DNA, that they just have no remorse for anything. Making making Nepo babies everywhere from politics look bad. <laughs> I swear to God, there's not that many good ones. It's like Hunter Biden and the Cuomo's. Like, I always say like Hollywood Nepo babies are bad. Try political Nepo babies, and I say this as one too. I, I feel like I like took like the last chopper out of Nam sometimes that I had normal parents. So it's kind of <laughs> fucked up analogy. <laughs> what? <up? laughs> Look, I have like you'd never. Do, I mean, you and I are going to talk, and I get to interview you. Yeah. But I do want to ask you why why you didn't go into politics. You know, I think that my when you see what I have. First of all, the the place right now is all just you have to love Trump or you're like go to hell. Particularly in Arizona, where I'm from, and you see just like. You know, politics is like it's the greatest thing in the world and it's the worst thing in the world. And I think that's why I love talking about it so much. But I don't think I have the personality for it. I'm a terrible liar. Terrible. Terrible spinner. You know, I don't I don't like trying to kowtow and kiss people's asses. Mm. And I honestly think it's a really hard place for a woman, which sounds like a cop out. But like, I hope before I die, there will be a woman president. And I'm not confident that's going to happen. Isn't that terrible? Mm. Would you ever want to run for office? Because I had always wanted you to as well. I know. And you and I have talked about this. And I haven't really delved. Maybe someday I will. But I was approached about my, my it. My husband calls you the archangel of, of God, I'm going to mess it up. But like you're like the, this like angel that's coming to like help people everywhere. Oh. And I think more people like that should be in politics. So sorry, continue. No, I, listen, I've thought about it, but I rem- I just remember what you just said, right? That it's like cutthroat and you got to lie and you there's just this side of politics that's so seedy and distasteful. But if I did it, I would try to do it for the right reasons and not go down the path of how others go. You know, I know that you need money and you need sponsors and you kind of need to go to those fundraisers. But I would want to do it from the side of somebody that was affected greatly by leadership and wanting to make a difference because of that. So I don't close the door. At the time when I was asked, I thought about it. You and I have talked about it. And I talked about it with a few people. And I almost did it. But I just thought the timing wasn't right for my family, actually. You know, my kids are right now 14 and 12. And I actually sat them down, Megan, and I... I asked them, what would you think if mom did this? <laughs> and it was overwhelmingly, please don't do that, mom. Oh, really? <laughs> it was. It was like, and I I understood that, you know, like you have to know that if you go down that road, you have to have the support of your family. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. Do you think when they're a little older, they might change I do. their mind? Uh-huh. I do. Now, do I know what capacity I mean, listen, Ron Kim and I, the assemblyman from New York, that was I also, love him. I love, I love him, him too. Mm-hmm. And he, but he's a Democrat, right? And listen, I like to say that I voted for both both parties, right? I, I I'm from Canada, so that should tell you a few things. But <laughs> but I voted for both parties. But Ron Kim is, is a Democrat, but I don't think of him as a Democrat because he actually is someone that cares about people. He's sort of like a enigma. <laughs> in politics. And he and I have talked about it. I'm like, Ron, maybe you and I should do something together because we would 
bring both sides, right? Like there are things that I believe in that are more conservative, but I also understand his point of view when it comes to his part of the party. And wouldn't that be awesome if we could, but, but it was, it's kind of like your dad's relationship with Joe Lieberman. Like he was able to cross the aisle and get along. I mean, is that possible anymore? I think it's possible. I just think the people with the loudest microphones aren't doing it. That's sadly, true. You know, but I yeah. just think you should. I still am a big advocate. I always say I'd be like helping you with your campaign. If you I know you would end up running. I think it's a great idea. And I think, again, more you have so many people who you fight for. And I think, quite frankly, New York needs more interesting leadership. It's also turning more red right now. And I also think the Amer- the one thing that I am certain of is that the American public is absolutely fed up. They're exhausted. They're sick of the division. I feel like we're in like this twilight zone of just like Trump and Biden, Trump and Biden. And then like yes. old people who are, you know, not, you know, looking like like Dianne Feinstein, like they're we can see with our eyes that they're not cogent and, you know, they're sort of non-compass mentis and not capable of leading. But we're like stuck in this area where it's just the same thing over and over again. It's incredibly divisive and it's incredibly toxic. And I, I'm open to voting for a lot of things right now. I am, you know, obviously I'm very conservative, but like independents, normal Democrats who like don't love Hamas, like I, I'm really open to just, I just want change. Yeah. Like I think the world needs just like a big breath of change right now. I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what we are seeing right now on television, you know, with what's happening in Israel and how people can't, you know, how all of these groups that were so strong, especially during the pandemic, like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and all of that, like they got to go out there and protest and be like, this is what I believe in. But when it comes to Israel and raping of women, all of a sudden there's so, so much silence from all of these groups. It's so disheartening right now, Megan. And I, I just, it is like an upside down world that we're living in. And we do need a change, I think. I think But this is what I think our country was founded on is just leaders that want to do it for the right reasons, Mm -hmm. not because they have a name recognition or they have lots of money or lobbyists behind them and all of these like tentacles into these corruption, you know, places of corruption. It's just, you know, it's mind blowing. And and I, I want to be hopeful that there is a glimmer of hope out there, but it's really hard these days. It is really hard. I agree with you. And I feel like we're in one of the darkest of times. And I always felt like, oh, good. Once COVID's over, like we'll sort of bounce back to normalcy. And that, that for me, it has not felt Didn't like happen. it has happened. No. And no. I just, I feel like every, okay, like, let me give you an example. Last night, I live in Old Town Alexandria, which is like, I don't know, 20 minutes away from Arlington, Virginia. And a house just exploded last night. And it was all over Twitter, like all up in my feed. Like, and I don't know how it happened or whatever, but it's like this giant, like, like looking like, I don't know, breaking bad house exploded. And mm-hmm. my friend texted me and I was like, I mean, I feel like it's par for the course right now. Like houses are just exploding. Like we're in this time where it's just like one bizarre, insane news cycle after another. Where it's, it's not like normal news cycles that are crazy. It's like apocalyptic yeah. news cycles. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? No, and I think social media is part of the problem. You know, like even 20 years ago, you know, when 9-11 happened, I talked about that. My husband's a fireman. He lost all of his guys in the firehouse. We all came together and knew who the bad people were. 
right? Mm -hmm. We knew evil and the evil were the terrorists that did this. But you look at what's happening, what happened in Israel, and it's almost like no one is pointing out the evil. Some people are, but then some people are silent about it. I I can't wrap my head around it. And I have to believe social media plays a part in that. Long gone are the days where we get our news from one place or the six o'clock news or the newspaper. We're surrounded by it and we don't know what's true or not anymore. Yeah. And we just don't know. And that's why part of me, even though there has been for me, the social media part of it was great when I was trying to be an advocate on behalf of the thousands of elderly that I was that I was speaking up for. Social media was a, a, a really powerful tool for me. But now I'm kind of feeling like I have to get off of it because I don't know what's true or not anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very difficult. We're surrounded by it so much. And I, I really feel like I want to be in the present for my own family, right? And and so you're right. You see a house explode, and we're so used to that kind of thing. We're used to seeing war on television now again that it's it's hard to like get back on our feet again. And you're and the COVID thing. I thought that too. We we're going to come out of the other side, and just be so grateful to see our neighbor and happy that we were out again. And it just seems people are even more angry. I thought it was going to be like the Roaring Twenties because the Spanish <laughs> flu was before the Roaring Twenties, and I guess that, like, added to the culture of, like, partying and everyone being happy. Yeah. And that's not what has happened. But on what you said about silence, I keep thinking of that Martin Luther King quote where, his, where he said, it's not the the words of my enemies, it's the silence of my friends. Yes. The amount of people who have been silent on Israel, who are silent on rape, who are talking in out of nine sides of their mouths trying to justify Israeli women getting raped in the street, I will never forget it. I will never unhear it. And the cowardice of people right now is just every time I think I can't be more disappointed in people. Uh, this has been a very revealing time for me since October 7th. What about you? I'm, sh- I'm sh- I yes, absolutely. You know, I think about I think about your dad. What would nice. he say? Right oh, he'd be now? losing his mind. I know he, he would. He would be. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I honestly can't imagine. And people ask me like how where did you become so pro israel where did your advocacy come from and i was like my dad was like your dad but they literally literally in israel literally like put out statements and lowered flags when he died like he was a beloved figure because he, he he understood and knew the very special and precious relationship America has with Israel. And then just on a personal level, his best friend was an Orthodox Jewish man. And I yes. was around a lot of, you know, just Jewish traditions and, you know, religious activities, I guess. And it was not unusual for me. And now at my age, I'm 39. I've come to realize just like what a gift that has been. Thank God both my parents have like shown me the light, shown me the difference between right and wrong made me really understand what anti-Semitism is, really understand it, take me to Holocaust Museum when I was young, make yes. me watch Schindler's, Schindler's List, all these things, because apparently these Zers just, the Holocaust was no big deal and hating Jews is fine. It's right. a it's a horror, it's a hellscape. Sorry, right. I mean, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? But it's it, awful. I also think we have to blame our educational system, but that's on the parents too. Like what you just said, that's how your parents brought you up. Well, it's it's our responsibility as good parents to talk about those things, to bring up history. I think a lot of kids are getting their quote unquote history from TikTok these days. Like they just, TikTok's they don't so have time to sit in front of a history book or 
even watch movies like Schindler's List to get a grasp of the magnitude of what happened. And and now to just like not even think about what these people have been through is like it brings tears to my eyes. It's it's unbelievable. It's and it's easy to want to just turn it all off because you're so disappointed. But we have to know that this is going on because it is going to it's going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm worried that this is like a shift that it's going to be like this moment that we look at right now where it was like this is when this shifted back mm. into anti-Semitism being very common and accepted. I mean, again, in Williamsburg, Virginia, like an hour from where I live, uh, which is like this really cute little historical town that does a lot of things and Bush Gardens, the amusement park is there. They just canceled a Hanukkah festival that they were going to have because the organizers that were hosting it said that it was going to be too pro-Israel and they didn't want to signal it on the side of Israel. It's a Hanukkah celebration. It's It's just a nice religious thing to light candles. And again, I again, we... Anyway, I think we've been talking about this for a long time. It's like it's just these little things, little things, little things, and now it's big things. But I, I just want to switch from this because I'll end up talking about this. The I know, I know. It, it's, rest it's, of our time. it's heavy on your heart. And not just that. I'll t- I could talk. I could do two hours if you're like Megan. Talk to Janice for two hours about Israel. I will be like, okay, let's I know go. you would seriously. So I just want to. I just want to move to something a little more personal because I've been trying to figure out a way to talk about this on on my podcast because personal stuff sometimes with me is a little harder for me to open up publicly about because you know I just have my scars and I've shared too much publicly at different times and it always hasn't been received the way I would have liked but you one of the most important parts that you've played in my life is everything having to do with me having children and fertility conversations yeah. um, when I was deciding whether or not to have kids I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage and it was really intense and it was really traumatizing because of all things that happened. I found out it was happening the day after the morning after I had had a horrible appearance on Seth Meyers, a comic, not comedy show. It was horrible. I remember. Yes. Horrible. And I like went to the doctor and that she had called me when I was at a photo shoot and I found out I was having a miscarriage. And I just remember calling you and just like, you know, primal crying to you like, I can't control my body. I can't control anything. I'm not meant to be a mother. And you counseled me through so much of that. And I remember you telling me, like, it's going to be okay. And really, you know, through your experiences with fertility and you having children, really just giving me, like, the down. I'm not going to repeat it on the show because it's, you know, graphic, but like what happens when you have a miscarriage, which is amazing to have a girlfriend who can do that with you. And then you telling me, like, you should have babies. Like, you should have babies. And yeah, I remember you telling my friend Nate that, who was also since had a baby, who at the time was like, who's like this tattooed biker guy that like is not the type of person that like looks like he's not babies. But you were, um, I mean, not that, but he was like, you know, he's like a punk cool guy, whatever. Um, But I just want to thank you for being that person. And I also want to thank you for being so open with all the things you've gone through because women should talk about these things. And now mm-hmm. I do have two children. And I want you to talk about this first, and then I have another question. Okay. No, listen, we almost didn't have kids, Sean and I. We started late in the game. I'm so grateful that we that we did, because I think both of us were so wrapped up in our careers, and I had been recently diagnosed with MS, and you just never know. And I don't think I was one of those pe- – I was never one of those people that was like, oh, I'm going to – when I grow up, I'm going to have lots of kids and – I just was never that person. And then one day, Sean and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, maybe we'll try. 
We did. We got pregnant. And then I had a miscarriage after that. And we wanted to have another baby. So we tried again. Theodore came. Beautiful Theodore. We tried again. We wanted three. I had another miscarriage. And then we decided, okay, we're happy with the two. But again, we I started late in the game. Had we began earlier, I would probably have had more children. But my point is, I knew how much it impacted my life. Listen, kids, for some people, some people live perfectly great lives with their spouse without kids. That's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy for them. But for me, knowing what it was like to have these two beautiful children in my life and knowing how it impacted me on such a huge level that I can't even describe, I wanted that so much for you and Ben. And I knew that you wanted that too, but that you were afraid. So afraid. Uh, be- so afraid because, you know, your your body rebelled against you the first time and you're like, well, is it meant to be? And I just wanted you to try again. Just try again because I knew what it was like on the other side of it. Going through something that was very painful and wondering and questioning, is 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 this what I'm supposed to do? Is there a reason why I didn't get pregnant this time and it didn't it didn't stick? But I wanted you to do it again because I just knew how important it was for Sean and I. And I knew how important it would be for Ben and you. So I that's why I kept saying that, you know, that you keep but, trying. And I kept telling you how what a wonderful part of my life this is being a mother. You know, I can't imagine my life without these two beautiful human beings. Um, so I just because you and I were so close, I wanted to he- keep hope alive in you. Well, you did that. And you, like I said, have been so amazing to me in so many different ways. Again, like everything from like. And you're a great mom, by the way, because you kept saying to me, I don't know. I'm going to be a terrible mother. Well, I've got to tell you, I feel part of what I why, why it's so important, like that these moments with you have been so important to me is that, you know, I grew up on the Sex and the City generation where having kids was gross and it would ruin your life and ruin your career. And like even I can't really watch some of these episodes right now where Samantha is like. Well, that's their choice with babies. Babies are disgusting. Yeah. And like this yeah. whole thing that like, you know, having children, the, what I thought until I was basically like 33, until my dad died, I was like, if I have kids, it'll ruin my career. It'll ruin my body. No man will find me attractive again. I won't be cool anymore. And I will lose all my edge. And I was petrified of that. And I was told in not so many ways by a lot of people that I work with, not at Fox, because I really want to emphasize Fox is a very family-friendly company. But other than that, I was told in a lot of places, like, don't have kids. It's going to just, like, fuck things up. And so yeah. that also really impacted me. And I I feel like so much of modern feminism in that way has been such a bad lie. Mm-hmm. Because what I have gotten from motherhood, you know, I think there's this idea that only women that have babies, again, they're not like you and me. They're not like women who were unsure about it, who didn't always dream about it. Like it was always like women who were homemaking from age 21 that aren't like maybe a little tougher and have gone through some things. And having kids is like brought technicolor to my life. It was yes. like everything was black and white and now everything sparkles. And it's very true. I just, yeah. And I'm not oh saying God. it's easy. It's not. Oh my God. It's so hard. <laughs> it's not. But it does get easier now. Matthew and Theodore are 14 and 12. They bring a different challenge now, but it does, it does get easier. Do you feel like, you know, because again, you and Sean are one of my, and again, the audience listening doesn't know Sean, but I do, your husband. I mean, he's really, he's a firefighter. He's a smart, solid, good dude. Another person that I would easily call in an emergency and he would show up. He's a funny guy. 
And like, do you feel like having these two children who are now getting a little older teenagers, what do you feel like it has done for your outlook on family and and having a husband? Because again, you and I didn't get married when we were 21. Mm. You and I didn't have babies when we were 25. Like, what does it feel like now? I'm really glad you brought that up because I found the right person to have a family with. Mm -hmm. And that took me a while. But I look back at some of my other boyfriends, not to say that some of them weren't nice guys, but I'm glad I waited to find the right person that I that is not only a, a husband, but a partner, right? Because we've been together for over 20 years and we have very similar beliefs. When it comes to raising our kids, we are totally on the same page. You know, sometimes he's the bad cop, sometimes I'm the bad cop and vice versa. But we're such with such a good team. And I saw the same in you and Ben. So I think that's the foundation that you need for starting a family. Listen, there are amazing single parents out there. I've met them and I've met their children and uh, awesome. But for me, I had to have that solid relationship to have the, the family that I have today because we really do lean on each other. And I think it's important now more than ever, to encourage the family dynamic. I'm so glad that my boys have a wonderful role model in my husband. He's a really great man, you know, and we were talking earlier about bad work environments and there are some not so great guys out there. There's not so great women out there too. But I found someone that is so respectful of me. And also, you and I are people that need our career, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that I've always known is that I can't necessarily be the stay-at-home mom with, with, you know, that's my primary role. Not to say that's a bad thing. My mom did a great job of it. Uh, But for me, I I really always needed that career part. And Sean encourages that, you know, like he's, I got this. You know, you and I are talking on the podcast. He's got the kids. He's, you know, picking Matthew up and taking him to cello practice. You know, so it's a team effort. I'm so grateful for that. But you really have to have a supportive spouse that allows that. So true. Yeah. I find that so true. Sean also, again, people don't know him the way I do. He. Well, he loves you, by the way. I'm obs- I am obsessed with Janice's husband. I really like when I got to know him. First of all, I feel like it's a privilege that I got to know him because he he doesn't he's not he's a like, quiet guy. Well, he's not a show pony. And so many no. men and again, my husband is much more of a show pony than yours is, but like so many men like who are married to women like us, like, you know, they wanna go to the parties. They wanna whatever and Sean kind of has to be like, you know, he'll only go to certain things. Um because he's a If you were there. Well, I he, he just <laughs> makes me laugh all day long. But you know, he's a firefighter. He's like a real dude. But you know, I wanna I also, one of the things that Sean is always, after my dad died, I was in like such a dark place. And after I had miscarriage, I was like in such a dark place. And I just remember going out to dinner with you two and he just made me laugh so mm. much. And he has always just treated me like a normal human being. And some people still treat me like I'm like an alien with six heads. And they're like this crazy woman and like dad was famous and blah, blah, blah. And like, I just... I can't express like he's just one of the great guys. And I'm sure this is not interesting for podcast listeners, but I can't express to you how much I love and respect your husband and Uh, what a great marriage role model you've been for me. I don't even know what to say about that. (laughs) Well, he he loves you and respects you and and says the thinks the world of you. Listen, you know, you've done wonderful things for me, too. There have been many times where I've 
called you and cried on the phone. The moral of this story is you and I have a, a really good friendship, a solid one that has been, you know, has lasted the test of time. And Sean sees that too. He sees that you have been there in my life for me. And that's why, you know, he loves and respects you. So just know that he feels exactly the same about you because he knows our friendship and how deep that is and how that's never going to go away. And I hope he's prepared that we're going to be in Las Vegas together in a few <laughs> we weeks. We are! <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. We are, we are all going to be in Las Vegas together. And I was like, Sean better take his caffeine and have some like Diet Cokes beforehand because I am so excited to go and hang out with Who knew? You. Who knew that you and I were going to meet up in Las Vegas to I know, finally we, see each other? We literally, you're going to see you too. I'm going to see Erica Jane, but they're on different nights and we're going to have you know hang out and have dinner and all those things. You have been at Fox News 20 years and you've been a meteorologist forever and you have written books, you have podcasts, you're on TV all the time. You're a household name. What do you want for your life and career in the next 20? Oh, wow. Well, I will say this. When I was 40, so I'm going to be 54 next year. Uh, when I was 40 years old, I thought my career was ending. I actually thought that that was the ceiling because, you know, back then it kind of was. It was rare to see people. There was Barbara Walters, of course, and there was a Diane Sawyer. But I don't know. For a lot of women, it was sort of expected at 40 that maybe you would do something else. And here I am at 54, and I just feel like I still have more to offer. And oh, the totally. world is different when it comes to – there have been some ceilings that have broken when it comes to women in this business. You know, there are more of us out there that past 40, past 50, past 60 are still doing great things. So, you know, I I love Fox. It's 20 years this year. It's been a great ride. I still think I'm doing great stuff. Next year, I'm going to be doing an eclipse and. Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm going on top of Mount Washington. Amazing. I'm going to do Groundhog Day as well. It's going to be the 150th anniversary of the Kentucky Derby. Your so- Kentucky Derby coverage is my favorite. <laughs> just, uh, it's the best. Just FYI. So, you know, I just feel I still have more to offer. There's still things that I want to do. I want to do another Freddie the Frogcaster book, which you and I are going to talk about. So, um, you know, onward. And I, I want to be a role model for women of a certain age. that They can look at me and say, hey, if she's doing this, I can do that too. Yeah. I mean, you are. I mean, I don't really think of you as a certain age in that way. You're not that much older than me. Um, but I agree. A little that, older like, than you are. I mean, you're right, though. Like, times really have changed. And I'm grateful know, for that. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you were first diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, did you think that you would still be able to have this kind of life and career? Nope. No. And that's, I went into a very, very dark place when when I was diagnosed. I really thought my world was ending, uh, that the career I had worked so hard for, I had just moved to New York City. I had this great job. I had a great boyfriend. I had this cool little apartment on the Upper West Side, and all of a sudden my world comes crashing down when the doctor says you have this incurable illness that someday you might be in a wheelchair. And I went through a very deep depression and thought Sean was probably going to leave me and my career was over. But I had a wonderful person in my life named Neil Cavuto who worked here at Fox. 
The best. And he was diagnosed with the same thing. And I'll tell you, Megan, if I didn't have Neil sitting me down and promising me that I was going to be okay and that I was working for a company that would support us, even if it meant building his and her wheelchair ramps, I don't know that I I would have, like, come out on the other side. But it really sometimes just takes one person to sit you down and tell you it's going to be okay and give you that little glimmer of hope. And that's exactly what he did. And now, almost 20 years ago from the diagnosis, I'm very lucky. You know, I'm on a good good therapy. I'm The, the drugs are getting better. There is so much hope on the horizon for people who have uh, not only MS but other autoimmune diseases. Actually talking to, about it and coming out and saying that I had this was probably one of the best decisions of my life because I was being honest and open about it. And if something happened and I, I woke up one day and I had to be on a wheelchair, then that was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I would still be okay. And I know that tomorrow I'll still be okay. But I think it's really important for anybody that is diagnosed with anything is to talk to people who understand the illness, talk to people who have the illness and make sure that you have a doctor that you can talk to and you trust. And so I was able to have all of those things. So I feel very fortunate for that. But you're for, you, going back to your question, I thought it was over. I really did. But I came out on the other side with a better appreciation of life because I do know that things can change in a heartbeat And so I do have a better appreciation for the life that I have, the career that I've been blessed with, and the family that was given to me by God. You are really one of, I can't express, like, one of the best people. And I want to thank you so much for taking time and sharing all of this. And you're just bravery, wisdom, humor. You're fun. You will eat carbs with me when so many, that was my other thing is like Janice and I would actually eat lunch and so many women just, you know, diet all the time. And I was always be like, Janice and I will actually go out and eat a real lunch. And I just love you. And I think you're just such an too. original and I could talk to you about everything all day long, which I well, we're gonna do, do it anyway. Again. But would you please come back anytime? Yes. I love you. And like I, I said, I too. just I don't know what else to say other than I love you so much and it's a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, I just, like I said, I really look forward to having fun in Vegas together. Me too, sister. It's happening. I know. All right. I love love you you too. Thank you. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. I am so excited for our next guest, one of the greats, Dave Rubin, host of the Rubin Report, which is on at 11 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday on Rumble and YouTube, and the creator and founder of Locals, the amazing uh, social media platform. Is that the right way to say it, Dave? Thank you so much for coming on. You can say platform, Megan. (laughs) I'm like, is that the right way to say it? I'm bad at tech stuff. I'm so happy to have you on. I've known you a very long time. You are such an interesting man, such an interesting platform. And I keep having all these guests on who are just on Bill Maher. And you did such an amazing job on Bill Maher. I I really have like a love-hate relationship with that show. But what I think is most (laughs) interesting is you are like sort of notorious for moving to Florida from California because California turned into such a hellscape pit mm-hmm. and you just had to go back to California to tape it. I went to California like, I don't know, five, in the spring and I was really taken aback by how bad it was. I found oh, yeah. it dirty, unsafe. I saw a man defecating in the street. I saw vials and needles on the ground in West Hollywood. 
what was it like being back? You know, it's really weird because I got the call to be on real time on Thursday and the show obviously is on Friday and Thursday, that Thursday night was the night of the big Newsom DeSantis debate. So I was planning on watching the debate, which obviously I hold that whole situation very close because yeah, I was one of the most public people fleeing California to go to Florida. My life has thrived. Actually, next week will be my, our two year anniversary here and I brought not only my family here, but two companies and a whole bunch of employees and everyone. I mean, I can tell you without exception, everybody's thriving here. Everybody's happier here. Everyone's making more money here because there's no income tax, although that was not the reason we moved. Everyone's living a better life here because when you live around the conditions of freedom, you can figure out how you want to live. And that's the promise of America. And it's a really beautiful thing. So it was kind of ironic that I got the call on Thursday. And as I was supposed to be watching the debate, which fortunately I was able to get on the plane uh, via Wi-Fi, uh, I was heading back to the place that I had just fled. Mm -hmm. So there was a level of irony there. But yes, you are completely right. Uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco is the most striking example of it. Los Angeles is largely a dump, not Beverly Hills. They have figured out a way to basically clean up Beverly Hills. But West Hollywood that you just mentioned, which was used to be like the coolest area in all of L.A., that was kind of like the gay haven. And usually when gays move into an area, it becomes gentrified and you get all the best restaurants and you get all the best stores and all that stuff. It's basically a ghost town. There are very few people, but there are some transients and homeless people and drug addicts and things of that nature. There's homeless encampments all over the place. And as you probably heard me say to Bill, there was literally a homeless encampment outside of their studio. So on one hand, Bill and James Carville was the other guest. They're telling me how Gavin Newsom won the debate with DeSantis. I don't know what planet they were watching that thing on. But I said to Bill, Bill, there was a, there's a homeless encampment on Beverly. We're on Beverly here. That's where these, <laughs> the studios, these CBS studios are. There's a homeless encampment outside. I got some fentanyl. You want <laughs> some? And, and it's like, man, the disconnect for some of these people is huge. So I get your sort of love hate thing with the show. I think a lot of people have that. And, and by the way, I say that also to, uh, or to add to that, I would say I've become friendly with Bill. He's a good guy. I don't know that he will ever get to the end of the road of liberalism. But I would say in some respects, you know, when you are worth that much money at a certain age, you know, late 60s, and you don't have kids, you can sort of maintain your liberal perspective because the stuff isn't affecting you directly, right? Like he doesn't have to be out there with the homeless people wandering the streets because people can bring him food. Or it's not his kids that are going to the schools and telling his son that, He's actually a girl or the rest of it. So I think there's a certain luxury ability that he has, which, you know, that's when people talk about liberal elites. That's kind of what they're talking about. But I don't mean that to like kind of crap on Bill because he put me on the show. We've become friendly and, and I want to be able to maintain friends with people that I see things a little bit differently then. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's a very interesting person and I respect the fact that he's trying and he's bringing up different views. I also was sort of taken aback that anyone could have thought that Gavin Newsom won that debate because I watched it. I thought DeSantis absolutely sweeped the floor. I still maintain that I am a fan of DeSantis. I always joked at me and my girlfriend, Sarah Elliott, who's been on the show, like, we're still like, hey, we're still voting for him. We're like the suburban mom group that's like super happy to vote for DeSantis. I am super happy to vote for DeSantis if, I, if I'm capable of it, if he gets that far. Yeah. I want to know, like, watching that, who is floating that Gavin Newsom in any way should be transplanted in? Again, I don't know what mythic area we're in, but mm. like he could be planted in and be the, the new presidential nominee. 
All you have to do is put the data points DeSanta just did and show again, I don't want to live in California. I've had job offers to go back in California. Yep. I will not take it. I will not live in that city. They don't. Ha- I don't want to give them money. I don't want to live in that kind of culture. I don't want to live in a place where there's feces on the ground everywhere. Just simple stuff. Why are people, why are Democrats so delusional that America is going to somehow be like, you know what, this guy has turned California into a sewer, but let's make him president. Right. Well, there's a couple things going on here. I mean, I would say first, it's like the Democrats and, and lefties broadly, they've won the culture war. You know, we're always talking about a culture war, but they won the culture war. And that's why Republicans or, you know, I'm the least traditional conservative you could ever possibly imagine. But anyone kind of roughly on our side of this thing, like if you think America is kind of good and you believe in individual rights and you're not racist and you want limited government, if you're kind of on our side of this thing, in some respects, we have to admit we've lost. We've lost at the federal level for sure. We have pockets of places that we're winning. So we're winning in Florida. We're, we're winning in Texas. And obviously there's a couple other red states that, that are working. But because so much of the culture is backwards, there are people, good people, who could watch a debate like that where it was so obvious that DeSantis told the truth, did not lie, laid out statistics, showed a freaking pornography cartoon that 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 Newsom wants in schools in California, and he had to black it out so that it could be on Fox News, yet these people seem to want it in schools in California. uh, Newsom, uh, sorry, DeSantis talked about how literally California will take children away from their parents in other states who want to transition and transition them in California. That, That is absolute child abuse and medieval barbarity and a whole bunch more. Uh, he talked about the economics. Like, DeSantis laid out every right thing. But your question is sort of like, how could people watch that and be like, come away with a different opinion? It's because people don't know what the issues are anymore. People don't understand what reality is, what truth is. I think they the the machine has largely convinced a whole bunch of people that everyone who isn't a Democrat is racist and a bigot and a homophobe, and it's deeply, deeply dangerous. And I don't know fully how we get out of that other other than completely separating from these people. But I would say largely it's a kind of depressing reality. But if we don't get DeSantis as the nominee, which, by the way, I still think is very possible, and I think it's partly why Trump is constantly still attacking him. I mean, why in the history of politics would you – has anyone who's been up 50 points – been attacking the number two guy every day. It doesn't make any sense. And also the polls are largely skewed, and I'd be happy to go into some of the numbers on that. Can I talk to you about Uh, that really quick? I actually love doing like political war games for primaries. And I actually think if he wins Iowa, there's, I mean, we're rocking and rolling. You know what I mean? Like he, there's definitely still a pathway for him. Why are people writing him off so much? Because again, I really like DeSantis. I've never been one of those people that was like, oh, screw him, whatever. I don't need my president to be like, I don't need a therapist or a dad right. or anything. I need someone to get America out of what the tr- like tragedy we're in right now. Well, first off, everyone likes DeSantis. The only people who do not like DeSantis, I would say it's two groups. So you have just sort of like the crazy MSNBC lefties like, okay, fine, but they're never going to vote for a Republican. The only people on a Republican primary side who hate DeSantis now are the most bamboozled Trump people. You know, the people that if Trump said that gravity doesn't exist, they would say gravity doesn't exist. And that is a certain amount of people. By the way, that's not me 
like taking down all of MAGA. I gladly voted for the guy last time. And if he's the nominee, I'm most likely voting for him this time. So, but, but that's the set of people that will just, you know, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they will vote for him no matter what. But virtually everyone else who's supporting Trump, and there's obviously a lot of them, they know DeSantis is not in it with Paul Ryan. They know he's not in it with George Soros. They know he was the best on COVID. Like they see through Trump's lies. They're just accepting of Trump's lies. So I agree with you. I think what's going to happen is, and and by the way, the, the system has an awful lot of tricks, and it's very weird that the odd position we're in. If you like DeSantis right now, Trump and MSNBC are on the exact same side right now. Trump and ABC are on the same side. ABC is owned by Disney. Every day, ABC, uh, or on the your, your former show, The View, and by the way, Megan, I should mention that I, when people say to me, who's the luckiest gal in the world? I always say it's Megan McCain because <laughs> she no longer works at the news. <laughs> she did something right on oh this planet. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but ABC is owned by Disney. DeSantis demolished Disney. And now ABC rails against DeSantis all day long while propping up Trump. They no longer really attack Trump, but they attack DeSantis all day long. MSNBC, they're constantly telling you, yes, that Trump is Hitler, but they're also telling you how bad DeSantis is. If you wanted to stop Hitler, you might you might want to say something nice about DeSantis every now and again. Anyway, what I think is going to happen is DeSantis went to all 99 counties in Iowa. I think he's going to do well there. The caucuses also, you know this, the caucuses are not normal They're voting weird. processes. The, vote, the caucuses, you're meeting with your friends. You're talking about what you're going to do. Kim Reynolds, who is a super popular governor in Iowa, she endorsed him. Do you think she just decided to burn up her whole career and be like, you know what? I am going to support the guy 50 points down. Let me do that and turn against MAGA. She knows something else that's happening on the ground there. So the question is, if DeSantis wins Iowa, you have, I don't, I don't know how many days are between Iowa and I think it's New Hampshire as it's number like two. You got five. It's, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's just a handful of days. You have a couple days to show people, holy cow, there is blood in the water. Trump isn't impervious. And and if you do the right thing, you might be able to beat this guy. And that is going to be the crucial five days for DeSantis. And I don't know what Trump will do in those five days. I don't know what the media will do to distract, you know, whether, whatever that means. The media comes up with all kinds of crazy things. Oh, my God, COVID's back. Everybody forget that DeSantis won Iowa. Like, who the hell knows? But I think that will be the key five days probably for the entire election cycle. Well, other than I like his politics, I really like the idea of having a young family in the White House with a normal normal relationship. I mean, they I don't know them at all, but they seem like they love each other. And they I think do. it would be I think it would be very healthy for America to have a healthy marriage with young kids. And he or she, I can't remember, said on this stump, like, you will not be finding cocaine in the White House. And maybe I'm just like showing my age. But I was like, I would really love to have like a young, cool family in the White House. I, I mean, and I am not going to get that with Trump or with obviously with Biden, who's just decaying in front of me. Um, can, can I tell you something really nice about sure. how they are a nice young family? And, and, you know, I think the one or two things that this, DeSantis has kind of struggled with two things. He's competent and good and he was a lawyer and he was in the Navy and he's just a good, decent man. So maybe he is not the most off, off the cuff man. I, I will grant you that he doesn't open up in like the most whatever way possible. But I'm with you. I'm not looking for a father or a game show host. I'm looking for a president. But we have to acknowledge that a certain amount of people are looking for that. So whether we're looking for it or not, like there's still a lot of people that are. I would say that's been one, a bit of a weakness. And the other weakness is that I don't think they really realized how insane going against Trump was going to be. I think they thought 
something to the effect of, oh, we'll do oppo research on ourselves, meaning I haven't had an affair, there is no cocaine in Tallahassee, blah, 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 like we're going to be okay. I don't think they expected the salt of the earth thing that Trump did to make it so that millions of people who all loved Ron DeSantis a year ago suddenly think he's, you know, working with Paul Ryan and Carl Rove and everything else. But I'll tell you a great story because you just mentioned the young family thing. And I've been around them on the campaign and, and a little bit here in Florida when he's with the kids and buying them ice cream and doing fun things with them and whatever. But one night we did an event somewhere, I think it was out in Fort Lauderdale. And after the event, there was like a little cocktail thing for, I don't know, like 30, 40 people and the governor and the first lady were there. And she and I had my tequila and the governor has his whiskey. And I don't think she was drinking because she had just recovered. You know, she had cancer and she was just in recovery. But she said to me and the guy was just the three of us. And she goes, she's like, and this is what date night is for us now. And I turned to the governor and I go, all right, Gov. And we were in a hotel. That's where, the, you know, and I said, all right, Gov. Well, you're in a hotel. Looks like you're getting lucky tonight. Uh. And he just any any put his hand out and he high-fived me and he's like, let's go, hon. And they walked out. Oh my god! And gosh. it was like, oh, you still get laid. <laughs> that's hilarious. You guys like each other. Like, why? That's the thing that should be seen by people. You're allowed to have sex with your wife. I know straight sex is thought of as horrible, especially amongst white people these days, but please, it's okay. And that is a great story, that. by the way. That's a great story. I would and I love wish that was the thing that would be seen more. You yeah. Know? As stupid as that sounds. No, I love that. I love everything about that story. I love everything about that story. <laughs> Every single thing about that story, I love it. I do think people listening should know that, like, there's a lot of people in this country, and just anecdotally, my women friends who have young kids are really grateful for what he has done on education, really grateful for what he has done with all this woke insanity in schools. I, it would be a pleasure to vote for John, Ron DeSantis. I hope I get the chance to. But I, want, I do yeah. want to move on, if, if you yep. don't mind. I, sure. This is maybe a little ridiculous, but I didn't know that you are Jewish. And obviously, we have seen this insane rise, 400% rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic hate crime since October 7th. I have just been horrified, heartbroken despondent. Here in Williamsburg, Virginia, a Hanukkah candle lighting ceremony was scheduled to take place this Sunday and it was canceled because, quote, they didn't want to be seen as taking sides. According to the Jewish community of Virginia, the organizers only agreed to do it if it was done under the call for ceasefire with Gaza. We're now seeing Primera Jayapal saying that rape is fine. Psychotic. Psychotic. You know, where is everyone right now? How are you dealing with it as a famous person, as a famous Jewish man, and just as an American? It's a lot. I, I would say this, that, you know, the story of the Jews, and your father was an incredible friend to Israel, but Jewish people, and that clearly translated you. to you, and you've been, like, unbelievable on all this. The story of the Jews, every, every story, every holiday, is basically, oh, we were almost wiped out again, but we're still here, let's tell the story, and then most importantly, let's eat. So there's a, <laughs> there's a funny thing that happens with the Jews, that the, the story is a story of overcoming oppression, but what's also based, or, or, or the story is the story of dealing with oppression, but what's also baked into the story is succeeding on the other side. You know, the story didn't end with Moses trying to get the Hebrews out of, uh, out of Egypt and then being swallowed by the Red Sea. It was split and they made it. Hanukkah is the story of the Jews defending the Judean hills, which we now know, unfortunately, as the West Bank where Rashida Tlaib doesn't want any Jews to live, but it's the Judean hills. I was just there six months ago in the very hills that the story of Hanukkah took place, that every Jew, whether you're completely secular or you're religious, has been telling the same story for almost 6,000 years. 
It's the story of the Jews defending their land from the Greeks. So you're going to see this over the next couple of days where Rashida Tlaib and AOC and Jayapal and the rest of the Hamas caucus, they are going to be wishing Jews a happy Hanukkah. What they will not say is what the story of Hanukkah actually is. But you don't have to be Jewish to care about that. So if you're Christian, let's say, Jesus Christ, he was a Jew from Bethlehem, from Nazareth, who ultimately lived in Jerusalem. The story, and that's why the, the Jewish and Christian stories are so deeply connected. And that's why, you know, in the last couple of days, when we saw that march in New York City outside Rockefeller Center, where they, the, Palis, the, the Hamas supporters, and that's what they are. They're not Palestine They're supporters. They're Hamas supporters. Never a, they're Hamas supporters. They, they went out of their way to target the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center. It's like, Christians, you got to be pissed about this. If you think when they finish with the Jews, they're done, and they're going to be like, all right, we're good. We got rid of the Jews. Christians, you're fine. No, you'll live as dimmies too. If you're lucky, they'll let you live as dimmies, they'll, or they'll just behead you. So I would say it's been deeply depressing. It's, um, it's been a really weird time, and I've had to think about security differently and things related to my family differently and all sorts of that. But I would also say that the story of humanity is mangled and difficult and not easy, and somehow that story finds ways to make you survive, and that is what your job as a human is to figure out how to do. Whatever people have to say about Republicans, and they certainly have a lot of disgusting things to say, my side has never justified rape, has never justified the kidnapping and burning alive of babies, has never tried to both sides issues like this. The Democratic Party has a fucking rot in it, and it is yeah. a cancer and a poison, and they don't want to deal with it. And Biden has 400 members of his you know, administration who have signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. I'm curious what's going to happen at the DNC coming up. What happens to this party? Are they just Corbynism? Are they just the party of anti-Semitism now? Because quite frankly, Dave, that's what it's looking like. Yeah. Well, first off, as I said on Bill Maher, you have to fire all of those staffers. I know they won't do it, but if we had a, if we had a responsible government and, and if, if the president was actually the president and then if any of this worked the way it's supposed to work, you fire all of those staffers. Those staffers are hired to do the job that the politician, whether it's the president or the congressperson or the senator, was elected to do. They are not elected to make policy. If they do not like the policy, they either shut up and do the job or you should be fired. But of course, that's not going to happen. That's that's one piece. As for what happened to the Democrat Party, I mean, we're yeah, we're kind of getting what Jeremy Corbyn did to the British Labor Party a little more than a decade ago at this point, which is the, it, it's the obvious end of identity politics. Identity politics whittles you down to oppressed versus oppressor based on your, you know, generally it's based on the skin color. In this case, it's based on ethnicity. It could also be based on sexual preference or that sort of thing. But Jews are supposed to be oppressed. They are a crazily small minority that have been kicked and pogromed and holocausted across the world. And somehow, not only have Jews figured out a way to survive, but also to thrive. And Jews have figured that out, partly because of the code that I mentioned before, because through tradition and through telling the stories of the past, they have figured out, and family and all of these things, they have figured out ways to make sense of the madness. That does not compute with the intersectional leftists. So AOC, it would, it literally, for AOC and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of them, you could show them a video. It, let's put it this way. If 10,000 Israelis were killed today, if there was some unimaginable incident that we can't even really think of, 
and she had video of 10,000 Israelis being killed, they would not give a flying fuck. Mm -hmm. it, the death of these people fits the system that they are trying to install. So the, what we all have to do is not let them install that system. So the Democrat Party is completely falling apart. There is nothing poor Chuck Schumer can do about it. There are obviously a couple good Democrats left and someone listening to this, yes, your aunt is perfectly nice and she's a Democrat. She might be a little confused about the state of the party. It's not to say every Democrat is evil, but as it relates to this, there is nothing that can stop all of this. And the double speak, by the way, from the Biden administration in general, on one hand saying to Israel, yeah, do what you got to do. On the other hand, kind of, we're giving money to Iran. We're not really doing anything about Qatar, where the, the billionaire leaders of Hamas are. It's all muddled. And look, the Republicans aren't great. They're not great. I consider myself a Florida Republican, not a, not sure. a national Republican. As I always say to people, you don't have to be a Democrat, but you can't be a Republican. But generally speaking, the Republicans are better. Yeah, I mean, je yes, I, I agree with you. Like, we can have a nuanced conversation. There's definitely rot in our party, too. But it's we're not running elite circles of the country in entertainment, media, politics. It's not the same animal at all. But I totally agree with you. Um, no. My last final question for you is, you know, I feel like you and I have been on this, like, parenthood journey together because we came, became parents around the same time. I had yeah, a baby first. Yeah. And then you've had two beautiful children, like, back to back, which God love you because having <laughs> babies that young together, I just can't even imagine. Yeah. What this is, is the like, quietest part of my day, by the way. Is, I, I was sometimes I'm like, I get to interview and they're not going to be, like, screaming at me and I don't have to, like, take care of every little thing right now. But what is it, your life like now? I mean, again, you, you went from, like, zero to having two babies really quickly. And you and your husband are just like, you know, you're such a beautiful couple. You feel like you're just living the dream. That's what it looks like from the outside. What's it like having two little babies at home? I mean, you know, it's, it's like crazy and rewarding and psychotic and amazing and nuts. It's like every polar everything at once. But I would say the, the best way to describe it is that when I get up at about 6.37 in the morning, and the boys are downstairs, and I walk in that room, they run at me with the biggest smile you could possibly imagine, arms out, thinking I'm the greatest person on the face of the earth. And I think it's my job to show them that I'm going to be pretty damn close to that. Uh, Jordan Peterson said to me years well, it was, he said it to me, but he, he would often talk about this in lectures. He would say that the beauty of being a parent is that you have the opportunity to have the best relationship with another human being you can possibly have. Even better than your spouse, if you think about it. Because if you really do right by this person, they have come into the world with no baggage and you can, you can build like the most beautiful thing ever. And I'm very, very aware of that. And, and I think it's made me a better person. I also think in the last, you know, two months since October 7th, you know, w during that week, um, both of our boys had COVID and I was sleeping on the floor with Luke because he was, you know, kind of coughing all night. And so we just each one of us took one of them and slept on the floor. And it's like, I'm, I'm telling, I'm seeing the news, these horrible things that happened to these babies. And then I'm on the floor with him, getting him through the night. And you, you know what it's like when your kid is sick or if the, or if your kid goes into another room and you don't know where they are for split second, your heart is like ripped out of your chest, right? And I'm talking about this, this most unimaginable stuff that happened on October 7th. And there I am laying with this kid just thinking, man, take me. Like, I don't want this kid to cough one more time. So it has this incredible way of putting things in perspective and, and also renewing you and scaring you and, and inspiring you. And that all kind of sounds corny. 
It does. <laughs> but it's all true. Well, I like I said, I just wish you and your husband all the best, and you're just such a beautiful family, and I oh, love you, your ben. show. Thank you, and I watch it all the time, and it's so good. And everyone, I mean, you don't you have much bigger following than I do, but you can find it on 11 a.m. Monday through Thursday, the Ruben Report on Rumble and YouTube, and also check out Locals, the social media platform. And like I said, Dave, thank you so much for your time and for your insight, and keep doing as my dad used to say, the Lord's work in the city of Satan. Even no, you're not in the city of Satan anymore. You're in the city of Sun, I guess. But um, thank you for all that you do. It's so important, every all the work you do. Thank you, Megan. I appreciate that. And I don't know about the Lord's work, but I'm probably going to go change a diaper. How about that? <laughs> That's the Lord's work. <laughs> that is, I guess, <laughs> that it is, is. The Lord's work. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all so much for listening today with me, Megan McCain, listening to my podcast. Megan McCain has entered the chat. This is the 14th episode. We are rocking and rolling. Got some really good guests going into the holiday season. Of course, we're going to have a special Christmas episode. And then Miranda and I are going to have a post New Year's episode. I was going to call it a hangover episode, but I don't really drink that much anymore. I sound again, I know I sound so old, but like it pro- it will be a fun episode where it's just Miranda and I talking about what we have going on for the new year and just like sort of like a fun, cozy, intimate podcast coming up in the new year. So there's that. And yeah, we're having a good time, right, Miranda? I'm having a blast. This is the best job. I don't even want to call it a job because it has to say work. I know, but I, 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 don't, I don't bullshit you. This is like the most fun I've had like ever. And so any other employers who are listening, like, sorry, but (laughs) I'm having a good time too. We're still getting into it. Like, I feel like we're still like figuring out what to do, figuring out like, you know, like what works, what doesn't. This is a process, but I, I'm really grateful for the people who are listening and engaging so much. And, you know, it's really fun to have a free form like venue where you can just talk about whatever you want, which sounds so stupid, but it's true. It's true. We've never had that freedom and privilege in any of our other like media endeavors, which sounds so gross, but it's it's really, we've been living under a censorship umbrella. Are you uh, looking forward to our New Year's episode? I am. I I don't exactly know what we're going to do yet because yeah, I have a glass of champagne and I'm out like a light now. Um, I don't know how we're going to survive Vegas. I don't think we're going to make it. I know. I know. We still, and we will have a special rundown, obviously, for everybody post Vegas and seeing Erica Jane, our friend Erica Jane's last performance. the scheduled performance of 2023. I don't know what she has going on in 2024. Right. Um, for her show. But yeah, we're going to be like staying up late and I assume drinking some champagne there too. So it'll be my I wild. In 11.45. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. On that note, thank you all so much. And uh, we'll be back again. Same time, same place next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this episode of Megan McCain Has Entered the Chat, brought to you by Teton Ridge. I am your host and executive producer, Megan McCain. Additional executive producers are Miranda Wilkins, Eric Spiegelman, and Wynn Weigel. Our supervising producer is Olivia DeCopolis. Our senior guest producer is Kara Kaplan and associate producer Austin Goodman.